There it is. The name of Jesus, right? That's. If you don't hear anything else today in my sermon, hear that. The powerful name of Jesus. That's why we're here this morning, to be honest with you. Because today we're going to talk about the struggle. The reality of who we are in Christ. Good days, bad days. We all have them. And it's okay to be honest with that before God and in our own lives. Romans chapter 7. This is a passage of scripture that gets tossed about and debated by theologians a lot. And for me, I just look at it and I go, Paul, thank you for putting this chapter in the book of Romans. Thank you. Because I think in this passage, Paul steps back a little bit. He's still the apostle. He's still the author of scripture. He's still the person that we know and look up to and admire. But he's honest. He's honest with us. So it's a great passage, and before I get there, the passage that was read, Heather, thank you for reading that, it's beautiful. That's the core heart of where we're going today, but I wanted to start with chapters 1, verses 1 through 6, the theme that we're released from the law, but we're bound to Christ. This is last week, chapter 6, dead to the law, alive to God, and he carries that theme into chapter 7. So the first six verses talk about that a little bit you want to put those up there, Donna. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, and again, Paul's going to use an example here. That's a hard one to hear, but it's an example that he's using to show the death of the law, knowing that is true. And he says, for example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law. Again, that's chapter 6. Through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we are in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to once what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I want to read this passage. I was flipping through Facebook one day, and I was starting to think Romans 7 a little bit, and there was a blog post from Erica Siebert. Now, you might remember Erica and her family. Her husband, Josh, was a pastor down in Southern Oregon near Grants Pass. About a year ago, he came up here to Portland to OHSU because he had this rare disease, and he was struggling to, to stay alive, quite honestly, and we allowed them to stay in our duplex, duplex number two, um, Erica, her two boys, and Josh. And in the time that they were here, Josh passed away. And it was a hard time, obviously, for Erica. She lost her husband and, you know, the, the two boys. Now she's a single mom raising two boys. And it was a very difficult time. And I've kind of been following her life a little bit via Facebook. 
She went back down to Southern Oregon, and then from there she moved back to Los Angeles, kind of where her family is. And she's connected to a church, and she's doing really well. But there was a blog post title that caught my attention, and she referenced Romans 7, verses 1 through 4. And that's why it caught my attention. And it's called this. She simply entitled it, A New Husband. And I thought, hmm. And I knew the passage. I knew what it said. I knew that was an illustration that Paul was using. But I, I thought in my mind, I said, how much courage does Erica have to even read that passage, refer to it as a positive thing? Now, Paul's taken a very negative thing, obviously, but it's a, for a very positive purpose, for a very positive truth. So I asked Erica, I said, Eric, Erica, can I read your blog post to our church? I wanted her permission to do that because it really spoke to me. And I said, I... I applaud you for your courage to even go there in this passage. It's, it's got to be a tough one to read. So here, here is her blog post. She says, isn't it ironic, and she quotes Romans 7, 1 through 4. Isn't it ironic that sometimes we live tied down even though we have fought after freedoms? We, might, we may limp around, weighed down by heavy burden, even though Christ offers us a light yoke through the cross that he bore. God has unfastened us from our natural bondage to the law and its accusations of our sin. Therefore, we need not live in the dark shadows of it since we are joined to a new master and free to pursue the true holiness that God requires by faith. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, Paul says in Romans 6, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Years ago, when my oldest son Noah was in preschool, I rented a duplex from my dad. My cousin next door owned a rambunctious large puppy. The pup was friendly, however, he would run and jump on Noah as soon as we opened our door. This terrified little Noah so much that my cousin had to start keeping her dog on a leash. One day, we came out of the house as usual and found the dog sitting on the back patio wagging his tail. Surprisingly, though, he was not on his leash. At first, I put on the mama bear hat, hovered over my child to protect him from the alarm. Then I noticed something peculiar. The dog was acting like he was still on the leash. He did not move a muscle. The pup thought he was tied down. Thus, he didn't even attempt to approach Noah. In the same way, we sometimes act as if we are under the law's tight leash even through, though Christ, we have been loosened to run to God. If we are born again, we have been set free to live by the same power of the Holy Spirit, discipline and godly lives to fulfill His purposes and rest in His unshakable joy and peace. We don't have to walk around dragging our feet as if the chains that once enslaved us still press upon our ankles. We have died and therefore our marriage to the law is over. The law no longer has dominion over us the way it did before we died. We died in Christ, and in Christ the law was fulfilled. We're free from the law. And I hope that speaks to you like it did to me, knowing her story, knowing where she was speaking from, a heart that lost a husband. But Paul uses that negative example for a spiritual truth that's real. In Christ we have died to the law. We're free we're free to embrace him. It's like he is our husband. He is the one that we love. He is our new master that we follow. 
Verses 7 to 14. <clears throat> That's why I brought water up here. I sing, I sing too much. Verses 7 to 14. I want to read those verses and talk about it. It talks about law and sin. Again, that relationship between the two. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment sin might be utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Soul is a slave to sin. The law is good. It teaches us things. It tells us what sin is. Paul says, <clears throat> I wouldn't have recognized covetousness. Without the law, thou shalt not covet. And there's some truth there. Law identified, defined, brought to our attention sin, but there was a purpose for that. And that purpose was to lead us to our, recognize our need for a Savior. That was the purpose of the law. It wasn't to make us righteous. The, the law also, there's this weird thing that happens with the law, and Paul refers to it in these verses. He says it's like sin kind of sprang to life. There's a great work out there by Augustine. He wrote back in the 300s, and he wrote this 13-book volume work called The Confessions. It's his autobiography of his life, how he came to know Jesus, how he was a messed up person, and how over time he came to know Christ. And in one of his books, there's the illustration called The Pear Tree. I just wanted to read this to you and see if you can identify with this a little bit. He said, there was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit. One stormy night, we rascally youths, I love that, we rascally youths set out to rob it and carry our spoils away. We took off a huge load of pears, not to feast upon ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs. Though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted, for I had plenty better at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The desire to steal was simply awakened by the prohibition of stealing. So what he's saying basically, and this, is, this fits our sinful nature, is sometimes it's not the pear necessarily that drew him, it was the fence. It was the, the whole idea that that's off limits. It was the law setting limits in our lives. And sometimes we want to just kind of revolt about, against that. And Augustine's very honest with, and he said, that's what really drew me to the pears. I ended up wasting most of them anyway by throwing them to the pigs. And there were better ones that I had at home anyway. So the law, sometimes that, the law just awakens in me this desire to sin. It kind of works the opposite direction of what God intends it to do. <clears throat> I want to make three observations about this passage that Heather read. 
Number one, I'm gonna read it a little bit later. I think we see ourselves in this passage. I do not understand what I do, Paul says. The very thing I really want to do, I don't do. And the very thing I don't want to do, that's the thing I find myself doing. Can you relate to that? Have you ever been at a point in your life where you just go, what is going on with me? I do not understand myself right now. I remember several times sitting before my parents or maybe a principal at school or other people in my life, authorities in my life, and them asking me this simple question. Why did you do that? Or what were you thinking? Right? And if you can put yourself in those situations, you've done something that's clearly wrong. There really is no reason to do why, why you did it. And so you sit there kind of like, you have no answer to that. Paul says, I don't understand what I do. He's just opening up here and he's being honest with us for a second. I think sometimes that's a hard thing to come to terms with. We come to church and we want people to think that we got it all together. You know, and there's nothing wrong with having a smile. In fact, it's easier to, you know, hang out with people that are smiling than people that aren't, honestly. But there's times in our lives where, you know, we put a mask on to cover what's really going on in our lives because we think a couple things. Number one is, this is who I should be, and I'm not. Or maybe, right now, I'm, I'm a mess in here, but I don't want people to see that. I don't want people to see that. And Paul says, look, I'm gonna give you permission here just for a second to take your mask off and admit sometimes you don't live up to that standard that you set for yourself, that God sets for us. Take your mask off and be real, it's okay. Now, I'm not gonna get up here on a Sunday morning, you know, obviously, and preach and tell you all of my sins. That's not the appropriate place. But I think we need people in our lives where we can be real with them and be honest. And I think in the room of grace, you can be real with who you are and give other people permission to be real with who they are. Not to glorify sin, but to say, look, I need some help here. My life isn't what it should be, and I know it. It describes the Christian life as we experience it often. Theologians go back and forth. There's Romans 7 here speaking about Paul before he became a Christian or after he became a Christian. And I believe there's three reasons why it's speaking of Paul as Paul, a believer, a leader, an apostle. And here's the three reasons that, in my mind, are pretty clear. Number one, he uses the pronoun I all the way through verses 15 to 25, and it's in the present tense. It's not... This is me back then, you know, that Pharisee that was going around trying to kill you know, Christians. This is me now. It's in the present tense. I, I, I. Secondly, verse 22 says, <clears throat> I delight. I delight in the law of God. I want to do what God says. There's a desire here. But then in verse 23, he says there's another law at work in me. Verse 23, right alongside my delight and want to do what God says. And that another law is a sin that's at work in me. 
The believer lives in two worlds simultaneously. That's the struggle. There's the now, but not yet. There's the now of we are righteous. We are declared righteous in Christ. We stand before him as Christ. Perfect. Okay? But over here, there's the life that we live here in, the, in this body before we go to be with him and stand in his presence when all that will be taken care of. There's the in-between, and we're a part of that. And it's a, it is a struggle. Look at what Galatians 5.17 says. Paul nails it down pretty good. He talks about this battle with two natures. It says, my flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit, the spirit contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you're not to do whatever you want. Know that Galatians 5 is that passage that talks about you know, we are freed from the law. We have the Holy Spirit in our life. We're to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. There's this battle back and forth. And then he, he lays out, after, chapter, after verse 17, he lays out, you can act to the flesh. And he lists out a bunch of things that we can do when we're not walking in the Spirit. It's a pretty ugly list. And then verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. When you walk in the Spirit, your life produces these things. There's this back and forth, this struggle, the two natures. This section of Romans, I think the third reason why is because the section of Romans that we're in now is sanctification. We talked about justification, that we're made holy in Christ Jesus. It's a done deal. He's dealt with the sins in our past. But now we're in the passage, verse chapter 6, 7, and 8, where we're living life as believers, and God is working in our lives to make us more and more like Christ. It's this process. Justification was a declaration of God. It's, it's a done deal. It's a one-time thing. Sanctification is a daily grind. It's a process of becoming more like Christ. Look at Romans, Romans 3.23. We quote this verse a lot. You're probably familiar with it. There's really... Two part, all have sinned, past. Justification took, took care of that. Paul says, you know, we've been forgiven, we've been justified, we've been declared righteous by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He took our sins, he bore them. But the second half of the verse, and fall short of the glory of God. That's present, ongoing, okay, we've been cleared of our sins in the past. But we're going to fall short, and we continue to fall short in our lives of the expectation, the holiness of God, and we know that. There's this standard that we still fall short. So it works both ways. The third reason on here is because I think this is not the whole story only part. Let me explain that. I think chapter 6, 7, and 8 work together as a unit. And seven shouldn't be studied by itself in isolation. By that, I mean this. Chapter six, it talks about the fact that we are dead to sin. There's victory in Christ. It's over. The battle's been won. The victory's won, right? But chapter seven is more about there's sins still living in me in the here and now, and I'm going to have some battles with that. The victory's won, but the battle ain't over yet. We're still going to have the daily struggle uh, in our lives. And it's setting us up beautifully for chapter 8, which I'm going to preach on the next two weeks because it is the high point of Romans. It is maybe the greatest chapter in all of Scripture. 
because it lays out for us the fact that we have victory through the Holy Spirit, that one day this, we're going to recognize and be a part of everything that God has planned for us. So six is knowing who we are in Christ. We're, we're dead to sin. We're alive to God. Chapter seven is about, look, you, you still have some struggles going on here in this life. And then verse eight is there's incredible victory through the Holy Spirit. And chapter eight is just this incredible crescendo of victory that we have in Jesus. So chapter seven is setting us up for what's gonna be true in chapter eight. It's the fact that God is gonna help us deal with this. What not to do with this passage? I just kinda listed out some thoughts here. Number one, don't lower God's standards to fit where we are. By that I'm saying God's holy. He was holy, he is holy, he always will be. His standards don't change. And I'm not saying that, yeah, I struggle with sin, so that's okay. I want you to hear that. No, sin is not okay. Sin is sin. It it offends God. It goes against his nature. That's not who we are. It goes against our very identity, our calling. So sin is not okay. And I'm not saying to kind of, I want to reshape the gospel to kind of fit that. Sin is sin, and God has dealt with sin in Christ. Also, this idea of turning inward to self-loathe ourselves. I don't want you to hear that either in this. Satan says to you, you're worthless. Satan's words to you are, you should hate yourself because, and there's probably a, a list there, God's words to you are, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. God's words to you is, I loved you so much, I sent my son to die for you. You're created in my image. I love you greatly. So it's not a self-loathing thing here. Ephesians 5.29, in that great passage about husbands and wives and Christ and his church, and he's weaving all this together, but Paul says something significant. He says, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for it, just as Christ does the church. It's not natural, it's not healthy, it's not godly to hate yourself and to self-loathe. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Workmanship, this idea that we're his masterpiece, that he has created to display his glory. We are his, the real Greek word there is poema, poem. We get the word poem from that. God is writing a story through you. You are his poem that's telling people about him. That's a beautiful idea, illustration, word for who we are in, in Christ Jesus. We're his poem. The third idea here, what not to do, is try to manage sin or gain victory by sheer willpower. Oh, I can do it. If I just follow these three steps, right, and they're out there, there's programs, and there's nothing wrong with those at their core. However, We need to understand power over sin comes through the Holy Spirit. It's God working in our lives. It's not me trying to be the best I can be and trying to follow all the rules again. That's the law. It's not about willpower. John 15, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said this to his disciples. He talks about, I am the vine, you're the branch. You need to remain in me. It says, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you're the branch. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. 
And then the last sentence is so important for us to hear. Apart from me, you can do zip. Nothing. I am your power. When it comes to sin, remain in me. You can bear fruit, and you can have victory over sin, but it needs to be through my power, not just bucking it up. What happens when we try harder is we get, we get proud. I could do this. Yes, it's me. And pride sneaks in there. Self-effort, legalism raises its very ugly head. You know, if you just do the right things and you're good to go. That's, that's not what it's about. We don't stand on self-effort. We stand on grace in our lives, in our walks with the Lord. It's about trusting God. It's about relying on the Holy Spirit. Chapter 8 is going to go into detail on that one. So why this struggle? Why do we struggle with sin? We're dead to sin. We have the Holy Spirit. What's going on in our lives? Why? The problem or the answer to that question is this indwelling sin that's still apart, that's still hanging around. We have a new nature in Christ. But there's this old nature that wants to still hang around this indwelling sin that's a part of us. Three times in the passage, verses 15 to 25, Paul mentions this. Verse 17, in verse 20, and verse 23. This idea that sin's there, okay? And just know that. As long as we're in these mortal bodies, until we go to be with the Lord, we're gonna have this struggle. We are a work in progress. Right? God's working on us. Sanctification. There's some beautiful things happening, but we're, we're definitely a work in progress. Philippians 1 6, he who began that good work will bring it about to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. This idea, it started when we inherited that new nature in Christ. We were saved, we're justified. We have the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's the good work that started, but there's still work to be done in my life. Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14, he says, I'm not there yet. Not that I've already attained. This is Paul, okay? Not that I've already attained all this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to take hold of it, One thing I do, I forget what's behind, I strain toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter three there. So Paul talks about that. So I wanna go to the passage, verses 15 to 25 here, and talk about the three struggles that Paul mentions in this passage. In verses 15 to 17, he says this. He says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. There's this conflict. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I, myself, who do it, but it's sin living in me. There's the problem. He says, it's still hanging around there. There's this sin in me that wants to drag me down. I don't understand what I do. There's these two voices. You know, on cartoons and TV stories, they, they, there's the devil on, you know, with a pitchfork on one shoulder, and there's the, you know, the little angel over here with a halo and the wing. You know, it's kind of goofy. But it's kind of that idea, the struggle. 
I know it's right. I'm listening. There's, there's voices here <laughs> that I'm struggling with. I know what's right, but it's hard. I break promises. I fail to meet my goals. I fall short. I do things that are just not only wrong, but just flat out stupid. And that's me. And I find myself wondering sometimes, what's wrong with me? Paul says, I'm in this struggle, the struggle to live up to what you know you ought to do or to be. So if you're in that struggle today as a Christian, we're in it together, okay? We all need encouragement. Why do we meet? Hebrews 10, 25. Why do we come together? Because we need encouragement. If I had my act together, I wouldn't need to meet with all of you. I would hang out. I'd watch football on Sunday mornings, you know. Uh, I would find something to do on Sunday. I wouldn't come to church. If, if I really believed I had my act together, I didn't need anybody. But we need encouragement because we're all in this struggle together. That's why we need each other greatly. We need to hear the word of God and we need to be around brothers and sisters who can encourage me because we're all in this. And man, I want to encourage you to think about small groups because that's really where hearts come out. Small group situations where you can really share, this is what's going on, please pray for me, I need some help here. Paul says it, it's not just that, but he says the struggle of repeated failure. Look at verses 18 to 20. He says, I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. I have the desire to do what is good, I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want to do, look what he says. I don't just do it once and I'm good with it, right? I just keep doing it. What is up with that? So there's this struggle that I have of this repeated failure. Last week I mentioned, or maybe it was a week before, addictions or sins that have really gotten a hold of my life. Those are difficult ones to deal with. There's things that I can kind of discard in my life that don't really phase me when it comes to sins. I'm not tempted maybe as much by certain things. And you all know what I'm talking, there's things in your lives that you would say, that doesn't really tempt me that much. But then over here, there's that sin that just keeps coming up. And I find myself asking God, help me with this. I need help because it just doesn't want to go away and I keep repeating this and I'm getting tired of this. So there's this struggle that we have, this repeated failure. Really the key in all of this is just a closer walk with thee. We sang about it. What do we need? We need a closer walk with Jesus Christ. That's what we need. It's not about you know, a five-step program, although those are helpful. I need encouragement from my brothers and sisters, but at the end of the day, I need more of Jesus in my life. Fall in love with him, and then the Holy Spirit speaks to me and helps me gain power over some of these things. So this, I, I keep on doing these things, Paul says. It's the sin living in me. He says, this is not the real me here. This is that old man, that old nature that's still there that I struggle with. The third struggle is to admit the true nature of the war within. Verses 21 through 23. <clears throat> he says in verse 21, he says, I find that this evil, it's right there with me. The Greek word there literally means right beside me. 
this struggle, this, this desire to do something against what God wants is right there beside me. It's like it's joined, we're joined at the hip. I'm walking around, and there's this person joined at my hip who wants me to do things that I know are not right. That's how close it is to me. Everywhere I go, evil goes with me, Paul says. I can't get away from it. It's not my environment that's the problem so much. It's me. It's right here inside of me. But you know what's true also along with that? And don't forget this. We have the paraclete, the one who comes alongside the Holy Spirit. We've been given the Holy Spirit, and the word that Jesus says, he says, when I leave, I'm going to... There's, the comforter is going to come to be with you. Paraclete, this paraclete, another paraclete, who's going to come alongside at your hip. It's going to be right there with you, helping you, giving you power over sin. So yeah, sin is, we're joined at the hip. But you also have the Holy Spirit who comes alongside right there with you. And then look at verse 23 there. It talks about he says, in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. This waging war, it's a military term here. It's like these soldiers are lining up for battle and they're coming at me. And they want to just take me down, Paul says. They're waging war. And it starts in the mind, he says, and if you think about sin, if you think about walking according to what God desires in your life, it really is a battle of our mind. It starts there. Remember last week we talked about reckoning yourselves dead to sin. The first word was no. No, this is true. It starts with our mind. We need to know what God's word says is true about us. Start with the mind, then it works its way to our heart. Reckon yourselves or count yourselves, consider yourselves dead to sin. It's more than just knowing it, it's, it's in my heart now. But it doesn't end there, does it? The next word is offer yourselves. There's the will, giving yourself over. Now think about how sin wants to work. Start with the mind. How did Satan work in the garden? God didn't say that did he he started questioning and doubts and playing with the mind remember and trying to mess with their memory a little bit did god are you, you sure god said that you're not just reading into something here or you know there was the mind and then boom 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 next thing you know the fruit's taken right and they act on it it's, the, it's an act of the will the sin and that's the way sin works Starts in this mind, Paul says. And then I become this prisoner to it. As Christians, we can unfortunately experience prison even though we've been set free. We've been set free from the prison of sin and death, but yet we can still experience by falling for sin and falling into habits of sin, we can still take a big step backwards back into that prison, so to speak even though we are free in Christ. So what can help us? Three things, verse 24 and 25. The good news is, Paul doesn't end there. Neither does God's word. Verse 24 and 25, three things. Number one, honesty. He says, what a, what a wretched man I am. 
He takes his mask off and he just says, look, I'm struggling right now. I know that there's just something not right here. Okay, I'm a wretched man. Now that's Paul's feeling about who he is. That's not God's words there. God says, you are my child. You are a saint. You are declared righteous. But Paul says, I know the struggle. It's, I'm wretched. I struggle with this sin in my heart. I'm a mess. Okay, but it doesn't stop there, does it? Look what he says next. Who's going to rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who am I going to look to? And I love that. It's a beautiful question. There's humility there. It's beyond me. My struggle with sin is way beyond me trying to fix it myself and manage it myself. Who's going to rescue me from this body of sin and death? So we, there's humility. There's three things you can do with your sin. You can deny it, pretend it's not there, even though it is. You can deal with it on your own. That's the managing of sin. Or the third thing is you can confess and repent and hand it over to someone who can help you with it. And look at verse 25. The first part of that verse is the answer to everything here. Thanks be to God for everything that he's done. Thanks be to God who delivers me through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a formula. It's a person. It's through Jesus Christ that we experience victory from sin. Thanks be to him, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, he's the one who's my master. He's the one that I serve. Not sin, but the Lord. In conclusion, just some things to think about. Number one, don't forget Romans 6. As we move in this series, we're dead to sin. We're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Keep that in your mind. Put it in your heart. Offer up your bodies accordingly. We're dead to sin. We don't have to live that way anymore. It's a truth. We have a new spirit inside of us. But don't skip Romans 7. Living in the now but not yet, that's where we are. It's real. There's something about coming to terms with our sin that opens us up for God's grace. There's something about coming to terms with the sin in our life and being honest about it that helps us to trust Him more, that helps us to take off our masks, that gives us freedom to be who we are in Christ with each other and gives other people permission to do the same with us. And there's something incredibly freeing about that. Don't skip over Romans 7 because it's, it's part of the story. But embrace Romans 8. And we're going to do that the next couple of weeks because the Holy Spirit's here. He's in our lives. There's victory there. Who can separate us from the love of, love of God? If God is for us, who can be against us? Those are the kinds of things that Paul's going to talk about in chapter 8. And that's the chapter we need to really camp on and really know. As the servers come forward to serve communion, I just want to read Philippians 3, 8 to 11 and close with this. So, Brother John, if you want to come forward and those that are serving communion, I'm just going to end with this. What is it all about at the end of the day? Philippians 3, verses 8 to 11. Here it is. 
Paul says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That's the story of the book of Romans, isn't it? I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I want to know Christ. That's what it's all about this morning. Amen.